0: Hello and welcome back to The Indy, the podcast from the newsroom of the Santa Barbara Independent. I'm your host, Molly McEnany, and this week we're talking about student life as this school year begins to wrap up. Just last week, the horrific shooting in Uvalde, Texas sent parents and students around the country reeling and pushing for reform. This week in Santa Barbara, Moms Demand Action gathered over 200 members to speak out for their children, encouraging those who own guns to practice safe storage and educate themselves on gun safety. This week, I'm here with Kendall Peda and Emily Engel, co-leads of Moms Demand Action Santa Barbara, to hear their thoughts as mothers and activists fighting for stricter gun regulations. Oh, thank you for coming on the show this week. So, Kendall and Emily, you're moms, right? So, how do you and other moms in Moms Domain Action feel about sending your kids to school in today's world?
1: Yeah, uh, that's a great question, Molly. And it's a really emotionally heavy question. Emily and I wanted to start a new chapter in Santa Barbara uh, after the Thousand Oaks shooting. And we're both mothers. I have a six year old daughter. And so at the time she was three years old and I, I just knew that I, I couldn't look her in the face and send her to school without doing everything possible to keep her safe. So Emily and I really were overwhelmed at the national level of gun violence and while Moms Demand Action is national, we decided to really focus locally on how we could keep our kids safe.
2: We live in a in a privileged place here in Santa Barbara, and especially in California, you know, statistics say that our lawmakers are doing the work to protect us by enacting gun sense legislation. And we have allies. Just yesterday, the Board of Supervisors presented Santa Barbara Moms Demand Action with a proclamation of support and solidarity. And we're very fortunate to have our elected officials working to protect our children and families in our local community. But uh, we stand together with 8 million dedicated grassroots volunteers from around the country who are working to promote gun sense legislation, not just to protect our own children here in Santa Barbara, but children across the country who are facing the prospect of gun violence in their schools, in their communities, and uh, as they go about their lives. And we want to promote their health and well-being, as well as that of our own children.
1: I'll jump in and say, because I just realized, I don't think Emily and I actually told you how we feel. I'm scared. Oh, I am scared sending my daughter to school every day. I can imagine the horror and the pain of the Uvalde parents of dropping your child off at school and not picking them up later that day. It is soul-breaking, as our our volunteer, uh, Luis Reyes-Martin, uh, said yesterday in a press conference. It breaks your soul. So yeah, every day is scary, and our children have become braver than our lawmakers our children and our educators go to school every day and it's become the deadliest place you can go along with supermarkets churches so i really think our children are the bravest people we have right now in our nation And Moms Domain Action, as you
0: said, they do a lot of national organizing and things like that, but the Santa Barbara chapter has been very active locally, and especially since the recent Uvalde shooting. Can you tell me a bit about the event you held last night and what a few of the speakers spoke about?
1: Sure. You know, after the Isla Vista tragedy, there was a, a local Santa Barbara chapter. They were our predecessors and they really did a great job of holding space for the community helping the community heal eight years ago you know so emily and i are new to the scene we stopped we just started a new chapter three years ago but yeah we've been very active and it's sad that (laughs) it's sad that you know we have to get the calls for interviews during these times like i never want to wear my red shirt ever again but we're doing the work so last night you know yesterday morning we held a press conference in support of National Gun Violence Awareness Weekend, which is called Wear Orange. And last night we held a membership meeting for almost 300 new members. Um, And this has all um, been driven by the the recent Uvalde shooting.
2: Yesterday, we had the privilege of hearing from local school board member, Luz Reyes-Martin, who is a member of the Goleta Union School Board. And she gave us the perspective of the work that's being done at the school board level here in Santa Barbara County. And we're hoping to actually expand on some of the work that the Goleta School Board and the Santa Barbara Unified School Boards have done in promoting gun safety by basically just informing and reminding parents about their legal obligations to store their firearms safely. So, one way that we have really addressed the issue of safety and wellness for children in their homes and communities is through education around safe storage. And Luce Reyes-Martin, Laura Capps, and Wendy Sims-Moda have have been advocates for this work on the Santa Barbara Unified and Goleta Union School Boards. We're grateful for their support, and we look forward to continuing this work with other school boards across the county. That being said, we also had Lauren Trujillo speak. She is a survivor of the I Vista tragedy and she shared her perspective and brought the survivors voice to both the press conference and the member meeting. And we look forward to welcoming survivors to our meetings, to our group, and to providing them with a place where they can connect with each other and with the community and engage to the extent that they feel uh, they can at this point. Survivors are welcome and honored in our midst and we always want to offer them the utmost respect and uh, inclusion as well.
0: And a recent statistic came out saying that more children were killed in 2022 because of gun violence than police while on duty. When I think back to the 70s and 80s, there was a higher rate of serial killers. But due to modern forensic and genetic databases, those numbers have gone down as people have been caught. But I just want to turn this into what do you think the 21st century culture, it seems like every century or every decade, something new comes about. So if you could comment on that.
1: Sure, this, it's horrifying. Um, attending school has become deadlier than you know, serving in the active military. Um, gun violence is the leading cause of death for American children and teens. Why has this number gone up? It's because we have easy access to guns. We, as a, as a nation, we have easy access to guns. We have to remember during, with this work that mass shootings and school shootings as horrific as they are, they only make up 1% of all gun violence in our nation. So 110 people are killed every day by gun violence, 200 plus are shot and wounded. This is city gun violence, suicide by gun, domestic violence, There are so, you know, racial violence, police violence. There are so many other issues that aren't sensationalized by the media, like a school or a mass shooting. And that that's hard to remember sometimes.
2: Just wanted to add that the research from Jillian Peterson and James Densley in their book, The Violence Project, also shows us that there is a very close connection between suicide prevention and the prevention of mass shootings. And so while I feel it's important to discuss and address the collective trauma we all experience in the wake of mass shootings, the research also shows that we need to pay attention to the fact that 66% of gun deaths are suicides, and that is uh, deeply connected with the culture of mass shootings. Researchers are confronting that issue, and we bring that material and statistics to bear on our work as well.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a great point, Emily. I just read a piece in, in Politico that Emily's husband actually sent me um, about some researchers that are seeing, you know, uh, These shooters, yes, some of them want notoriety. Some of them want are fueled by hate. But this is their last act. It's it's not only a homicide, but it's a suicide. It's a gun suicide. And I thought that was so so eye opening to me to look at it that way.
0: Yeah, that is interesting to think about, especially because when they anticipate something like that, yeah, you you have to also anticipate like yourself not coming out of it at the end of it too. So that's interesting that that you bring that up. Yeah, which brings me to, you know, Santa Barbara has this horrific history of gun violence considering the 2014 Isla Vista shooting. How has this chapter of Moms Demand Action worked to keep this pressure on lawmakers to implement stricter gun safety laws throughout all these years?
1: So yeah, Molly, Santa Barbara does have a horrific history of gun violence. And, you know, we just last week, right before the Uvalde shooting, you know, marked the eighth anniversary of the Isla Vista tragedy. So how has this chapter, how has Santa Barbara really worked locally and at the state level? You know, like I said, you know, eight years ago, there there was a previous chapter of Mom's Demand really working with survivors and helped to push new legislation. Doss Williams, our county supervisor, was very instrumental in creating what's called a red flag law. So we know that the Isla Vista shooter, he was a danger to himself and others, his parents, Knew he was a danger, they called law enforcement, but law enforcement had no legal recourse to obtain his firearms. This happens all the time. People, you know, shooters, they post on social media. There's, there's, we know they're a danger, but we can't do anything. So red flag laws allow law enforcement to temporarily restrain firearms from someone that has shown that they're a danger to themselves or others. And so this legislation, which, you know, California is one of 19 states that has these red flag laws. This legislation came out of the Isla Vista tragedy. So, you know, Santa Barbara is actually kind of like this beautiful, fertile land for, you know, turning this tragedy into something greater. And like Emily mentioned, our congressman, Salud Carbajal, is pushing this legislation at the federal level. He's calling it an extreme risk protection order. So that would mean that across all 50 states, if you know someone is a threat and, and owns a firearm, you can call law enforcement and they can have their, their firearm te- temporarily restrained.
2: One thing that I would like to emphasize is that we are in a unique position here, especially with the support of Congressmember Salute Carbajal's office, to help promote. Gun sense legislation from our local community out into the rest of the country. And so it's important, I think, to emphasize that the work that we do here in Santa Barbara, in Santa Barbara County, and in California, ripples out across the country. And the legislation that we pass here often serves as national precedent, which can impact the lives of millions.
0: And how do you both feel about this idea that has been presented on the other side to just give teachers guns? Now, the recent shooting, there was an armed guard outside. So based on statistics, would this policy be effective at all?
2: Well, I don't have the statistics in front of me. You probably have that information better than I do. I can just speak from the perspective of our membership, where the goal of our local group is to think about how we can address gun violence from the root cause. And one way that we do that, of course, is through the education of parents and families and safe storage. And another way that we do that is by promoting overall student wellness. And uh, we've partnered with a lot of local organizations to um, facilitate and enable student wellness at all levels, because I think that our membership really wants to see students and families supported from the ground up. And to provide that support, especially during those crucial junior high and high school years for mental health and, and overall student wellness will in many ways address the cause at the root rather than trying to respond in the moment when tragedies are unfolding.
1: To your question, how do I feel about arming teachers? No, that's a, I don't agree with that. I think it's a terrible idea. I am not a ballistics expert, but I know from all the research we've been doing, Um, every town has a research side and all the research is saying that no more guns does not make us safer if if more guns made us safer we would be the safest country in the world and we're not so having having access to a gun in a classroom increases the likelihood that a child is going to access it okay and we don't want children accessing guns we also know that In instances of school shootings, like we saw in Uvalde, there were armed police on site and nothing happened. It's hard to hit a moving target at 30 feet, from what I've been told. Again, I'm not a ballistics expert, but it's hard to hit a moving target with a handgun when that target has an assault weapon. So no, Moms and Man Action is firmly opposed to arming teachers they already have the hardest job in the world. I can't imagine them having to be living in fear that their students would access a gun. Also, you know, over ninety percent of all school shooters obtain their firearm from home. So I can't even imagine how how much the the risk would go up if there were more guns
0: in schools. So, in you know, a few final closing thoughts. What are the main nuances to gun violence that you think people don't know about? And I know we've brought up some, but maybe just to synthesize it, things that people don't necessarily count as gun violence, especially when, as you said, we see so many incidents of gun violence happen around the country every day.
1: I think something people don't know or they they forget about is that our black and brown communities are affected by gun violence three times more than our white communities. So I think that's something people forget or don't know. And another thing I don't think people know is that these school shootings and these mass shootings make up such a small percentage of all national gun violence. But because but they are so horrific. I mean, losing a child at school is horrifying. And something I would just urge people to do is just have the conversation with your neighbor. Talking about gun violence should be normalized. Gun violence itself should not be normalized. Ask your friends, you know, if they own firearms, when you send your kids over for a play date. I usually, I usually lump it in with like, do you have any allergies? No. Okay. And are you, are you guys firearm owners? And if so, how do you store your guns? So we're just really trying to normalize the conversation around this really polarizing topic.
2: I would add that the biggest act of gun violence that anyone can perpetuate on a daily basis, is not speaking up. And I think what is so remarkable about Moms Demand Action is that over 8 million supporters have spoken up and continue to speak up. And last night, we had an outpouring of support at our member meeting. And I think the the takeaway that I gave to our members last night, which I give to your listeners today, is that putting your voice forward, whether it be to a friend advocating for your own child on a play date, as Kendall just said, or with your congressperson, or perhaps as a volunteer for Moms Demand Action, you can make a difference. Every individual voice has an impact when we speak as a chorus, and that is what's happening now as Moms Demand Action becomes more powerful than the NRA, has an impact on our elected officials, and we're seeing the movement toward safety, toward protection, and uh, we want to keep the momentum going, and everyone has a role to play, and we welcome you guys to come out and join us as we continue our work here in Santa Barbara, Santa Barbara County, California, and across the country.
1: Yeah, that's that's so well put, Emily. I, I think if gun violence is so overwhelming on the national level. I know a lot of us, like I spent the whole week crying. I haven't slept. It is, it is tragic and it's horrific. And you think, oh my God, this is never gonna stop. But just having one conversation about safe storage can save one, at least one life and one child's life. It's worth it. You don't have to spend 50 hours a week on this. You just have to have the conversation and safe storage is a really, really easy way way to start that conversation.
0: And I, And it shouldn't be, you know, polarizing to talk about that either because it is about safety. And at the end of the day, it's, isn't that what we're all searching yeah. for is to make sure that our kids are safe and our families are safe.
1: Absolutely.
0: And I I like that you mentioned that you had friends who own firearms as well, because that just is like, there's not a, there's not a divide. So I'm really glad that you stressed that, but is there anything else that you'd like to add that maybe I missed? Moms Demand Action talks about gun violence in general, which is super important to talk about.
1: Well, I think another thing people don't realize to your point, Molly, about this being so polarized is that we have gun owners in Moms Demand Action. There are people that don't feel that the NRA represents them. They own firearms, but they believe in safer gun laws and they are in our membership. So I, I am searching for those voices in Santa Barbara. Who are you? Who are the responsible gun owners that feel the same way we do? And how can we come together? Because like you said, we all want our kids to be safe. That's the bottom line. So I really, I'm searching for you. If you're out there listening, you know, we want to talk to you. We want to have the conversation and We want to learn from you as responsible gun owners. And like Emily said, with 8 million supporters and volunteers, like that's a, that's a lot of people coming together.
2: Thank you so much. And it'd be great if you could add our Instagram handle and our email address to the show notes and, you know, just point people to us. So they have a resource if they're interested in getting involved. And you could also point them to
0: momsdemandaction.org as well. Definitely. 100%. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the show this week. This was a lot of great information and I really appreciate how you brought up uh, all the work that Moms Demand Action is doing outside of just, you know, protecting children, but also what's going on in the state level, national level. So it was really awesome to hear that. Thank you so much for coming on the show this week. UCSB and Isla Vista are often seen as one big community, and when it comes to housing, both were involved in this year's historic housing shortage, leaving many students in a panic to find a place to live right before the start of the school year. Indie reporter Jennifer Yoshikoshi reports from Isla Vista on the current crisis.
3: Students of UC Santa Barbara are struggling to find housing within the university and in its neighboring college town of Isla Vista. This past year, the pandemic impacted the availability of university housing, leaving thousands of returning students houseless. In 2010, Santa Barbara County, the city of Goleta, and UCSB created the Long Range Development Plan, which would shape the development of the campus by 2025. One aspect of this contract was to have a maximum enrollment of 25,000 students by 2025. Over the past couple of years, the issue of over-enrollment by the university led to a total enrollment of over 26,000 students this year, going over the anticipated account. If students aren't living in university housing, they are most likely living in Isla Vista, but for the past couple of years, the housing crisis has forced students to live in dense living situations, creating bedrooms and garages, and some even living in their cars. Valerie Sweat, the owner of SFM Vista Del Mar, one of the many property management companies in Isla Vista, told me a little more about the housing market in Isla Vista and the housing crisis in the college town. Wow, that's incredible. And so throughout all those years that you've been here, could you tell me a little bit about the housing crisis in Isla Vista right now?
4: Real estate, both rentals and uh, sales, goes through Uh, a market, market ups and downs. Sometimes, you, you know, there's more apartments than there are students. And other times there's more students than there are apartments. And sometimes during a recession, we beg people to rent our apartments. And other times, like right now, there just isn't enough. This is the worst I've seen in almost 40 years out here. Uh, With people living in their car last year and probably looking at doing the same this year unless they can get additional rentals in Goleta or Santa Barbara
3: Yeah, and so I know I've seen a lot of students here in Santa Barbara that are still struggling to find housing right now Has the majority of the people that are leasing through you been students? I know through pandemic a lot of outsiders were also renting in Isla Vista.
4: Um, I specialize in student rentals, uh, so I do have what I consider outside rentals in Goleta that are occupied by working folks, uh, always available to students, but the working folks have been there for many, many, many a year. Most of my tenants, probably 98% are students of one sort or another, anywhere from freshmen to those going for their master's
3: and so within these past years the influx of students unable to secure housing a lot of students were scrounging for a place to live this year what was it like on your end as a
4: landlord we averaged twenty thirty calls a day at one point uh, for re-rentals for this year we were averaging probably about a hundred emails a day I have a new operating system that we put in place this year with Appfolio and that actually kept track of the number of applications we received and we received over 4,400 applications for 400 spaces. Wow. It was really scary. I, I was pleased to see what the numbers were, but when I could only give one out of 11 people a place to live, that was hard. That was really hard
3: yeah and were there a lot of students that came to you complaining just begging for a place to live
4: yes many people we had um, some of them took some time to get through the process uh, setting up a portal with their co-signers and stuff and other people would come in and offer us three months rent and they'd sign right there on the spot but I had given my word and people were in process of renting these apartments and so I would not back down and we went with the original set. We did do a um, waitlist and we were able to help probably an additional 10 or 12 people from the wait list. Things change, you know, people transfer schools, people go home, people get sick. Um, and want to get out of their lease for next year and we've been able to help people that way without going back to the application system because if I got a one-bedroom and I put it up there I'd probably get another 500 applicants for it and that's just it's not fair yeah so those that called and requested to put be put on a wait list we did put them on a wait list
3: Mm. And so you talked about all of these thousands of applicants that you received this year. How many properties do you currently own here in Isla Vista?
4: I don't own any of them. I own the business, but I manage the properties for a whole bunch of different owners. Some based here as close as Goleta, Santa Barbara, and some I've got one in um, Montana. But I have about 130 apartments.
3: And so why does Isla Vista make this business flourish. What's so
4: special about the college town? When I started my business in 1984 I had a mortgage and regular payments. I was married and I couldn't afford the one to two years to start a business before I turned a profit. And I chose, I had been working in the field for about three or four years for a couple of other companies, and I chose this business because there was security in the rentals with the university being there. Um, It wasn't a hit and miss like Santa Barbara Goleta can be. The students needed to live and most of them, they needed some place to live and most of them wanted to live in Isla Vista because it was so close. And that's why I chose Isla Vista. I also learned over the years and decades that I enjoy the college students. They're in an interesting place in life. They're no longer children, but they're not quite full adults. And I took that on as a teaching situation. It was my job to teach them how to go from mom and dad's house into the real world. And we have an open door policy, or at least we tried during COVID, Uh, but they can come in and ask me, hopefully any question they want. I've had people come in and talk to me about Uh, boyfriend-girlfriend issues, parental issues, of course housemate issues. Talk to me politically and we've had wonderful conversations even if we're on the opposite sides of the fence and I treasure that because many of these kids they're not just students to me. They are friends. I have people who still are in touch with me after 20 years.
3: I'm glad to see that there is that special connection that you can make with the people who are leasing around here, it's not just that landlord-renter relationship. It's a lot deeper than that.
4: It's not just based on a dollar sign. Exactly. And there are some who are. There are some who don't like the students. And my comment to them is, why are you here Mm -hmm. if you don't like the college students? Because that's who you're renting to. And they get mad at them if they do something wrong. And in most of those cases, they don't know mom and dad forgot to teach them that part, or mom and dad never experienced while they were old enough to understand. And that's not their fault. It's my job to teach, and I do everything I can to do that.
3: And so, touching back on the university that you mentioned earlier, that's kind of why you liked managing properties here in Isla Vista. These past couple of years, there's been an issue with over-enrollment at the university. How important is it for you to keep up with things that the university's doing to plan for your property management?
4: There's not much I really have to plan. I normally re-rent all of my apartments every year. I have very little trouble, she says cautiously as she knocks on wood. My pricing tends to be less than most of the rest of the landlords and there was education involved mathematics to my clients to teach them that raising the rent isn't always the best option if you want a tenant to re-sign up for another year in the same apartment and everybody wins in a situation like that the tenant doesn't have to move twice the security deposit rolls over into a new year so they don't have to pay it again and they get an additional 12 months of normal wear and tear against charges against their security deposit. The owner doesn't lose that two weeks worth of rent, and even with a lower rate for 12 months versus a slightly higher rate at 11 and a half months, they'll make more money on a 12-month lease. For me, it's one less dirty apartment I have to inspect at a very busy time of year.
3: Mm-hmm. And so, how do you manage all of the people who are looking to apply and live at these apartments if
4: you are going to release to most of them? The current tenants, in most cases, have the option to release their apartment first. And they'll, they're given X number of days in order to notify us. They don't necessarily have to sign a lease within that time, cause sometimes it just isn't possible to you know, sign that many leases in, in two days or whatever. And so they have first options. And then we put it out to any of my current tenants that wanna move from one apartment to another. And we go that way. I try and keep as many of my current tenants as I can. They know me, I know them, they know the rules of the lease. Uh, they know how I operate it all tends to work out the more of them I can keep. There's always some that the percentages say that you uh, you won't necessarily keep, that, you know, you can't please everybody all the time. And a lot of them graduate or a lot of them say I've had it with IV and they moved to Santa Barbara. <laughs> and those things all happen. So when it comes to picking out people, wow that was really tough this year and we you know when you have when you open up a particular address and there are 150 applications for that one apartment and you have to try and pick somebody out and all you're looking at is letters and words. There's no face, there's no, um, no way to get to know this individual, there's no personality and we started doing something sometimes we had to do a lottery. But most of the time, if people came in and talked to us or called us every other day, we would put them higher up on the list because we'd had a chance to get to know them, even if it was just verbal. And we tried to get as many of those people as we could an apartment. And some people figured it out and started coming in and talking to us, which was great. We have got the face-to-face. And that worked out really well for a lot of them. It finally came down to one point that we had to do an honest to goodness lottery sometimes that's the fairest way to do it
3: yeah it seems like a difficult challenge to have to pick people out of applications when you have no idea about who they are so yeah it's very interesting to hear that sometimes you just have to do it through the lottery or you mm-hmm. prioritize people who seek that connection and try to make their way up to the top of the list
4: mm-hmm. Yeah, it was it was really hard this year with uh, 4,400 applicants. It was just a lot, a lot of people. Um, And it was kind of scary. You did touch on something about the university over enrolled and For years, we knew as landlords, the long-term landlords like Ron Wolf, Sierra Property Management, Embarcadero, they would all be aware if they had gone to the meetings way back when they would have uh, a meeting every quarter. Most of us would go to these meetings. There was, that was how we learned about the process that the university used in order to uh, obtain X number of students for any given year. And they had done their math, and it was a percentage. At when you pay your fee, you can apply to four different UC colleges for one fee. So the university played the numbers. Let's say they needed 2,500 freshmen. Well, they knew the numbers said that they would have to accept 7,000 people in order to get approximately 2,500. Well, that changed. In the last few years. I don't know why but they would accept 7,000 in hopes to get 2,500 and they'd get 3,500 or 3,800 or 4,000 and when that happens several years in a row and the, the students stay for their sophomore and junior years you run out of housing and I'm sure the University took that into account and lowered that expectation but again It's still a gamble. I know it's their fault and I feel for the university because they're struggling too to find places for the students because that's their job, even more than mine.
3: Mm -hmm. And so how did you feel seeing all the kids here living in cars, not being able to find housing in Isla Vista or in nearby areas and struggling to just have a place to live?
4: I didn't actually see it, I just heard about it. I heard about it from a lot of my tenants who had friends or people they knew that were struggling. Uh, I know there was a lot of couch surfing that went on for a while in hopes that some of these people would find a place. I had countless people contact me all throughout the year looking if I had anything come up.
3: And I know a lot of residents here sometimes have people living on their couches and paying rent under the table. How do you feel about that when you know that there's a housing crisis here?
4: I have to go with the law. If you sign a contract, it's not your autograph. It's a legal contract. And if it says six people in your apartment, that doesn't mean six and one on the couch or two on the couch or three in your bedroom. It's it's the law. I understand putting your couch out there for a few days, helping your friend and I turn my my head at that, I don't mind that, but I do have a problem with illegal tenants. When we calculate, and particularly since my rents are on the low side, when we calculate the rent, it's by person in order to cover wear and tear on the unit that the owner pays for and the utilities that the owner pays for. And we keep the rent low so as most students can afford these rents they're not ridiculous and so when the tenant abuses that it's not fair i do everything i can to make it more affordable and they take advantage of it temporarily occasionally once in a blue moon whatever you want to say is one thing somebody coming to visit for three days over the weekend and couch surfing no problem but to bring in an illegal tenant that's a slap in my face that is a breach of contract which i have the right to evict and i usually don't
3: yeah that shows that relationship that you have with your landlord as a leaser is really important and when you do violate the lease it just causes a lot of trouble that makes it inconvenient for yourself well it's interesting to hear about these stories that you have where people are breaking the lease and Like you said, it is an educational experience for these college students to rent out their own places for the first time living on their own and some might not have the guidance that's needed to be a respectful tenant at a property. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for providing so much insight on the housing crisis here and providing your insight owning a property management here at a college town that is struggling with housing right now. Um, So, yeah, thank you so much for joining me in this interview today.
4: You're quite welcome.
0: Thanks for joining us this week on The Indie. Once again, I'm your host, Molly McEnany. Tune in next week for another episode.